I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A new commission from the World Health Organization has been meeting to address a growing health threat, and that is loneliness. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. The mortality associated with social disconnection is on par with smoking daily. It's even greater than the mortality risk that we see with obesity. Our question, when was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? As an immigrant, I came here, couldn't really speak the language. I ended up being a single parent. Probably a lot of single parents can say it's a very lonely life because you have no time for socializing. We're in and out of 30 homes a day delivering meals and having quick chats with the recipients and it really enhances their lives, you know, to have that daily check-in with a with a volunteer and it enhances ours as well. I'm not into sports. I, I don't like to go to bars. It can be troublesome. I would say I have one, maybe two, close relationships. About a quarter of the world's population feels lonely, according to a recent poll. The U.S. Surgeon General was one of the voices you heard who says health risks associated with loneliness are as bad as smoking. Loneliness can be bleak, but I don't think today's program will be. We're going to hear from some experts, some you might expect, a psychiatrist, for example, and some whose expertise might surprise you. How city designs can encourage social contact, for example, and how artificial intelligence can be used not as a replacement for human contact, but as an enhancement. Our question, when was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Check Up the Podcast, cross-country checkups live broadcast from February the 4th, 2024. Let's go to a call to begin the program. Jessica Bonish is in Regina. She connected with us via air check. Hi, Jessica. Hi there. Uh, tell us about in your life, when's the last time you felt acute loneliness? Uh, well, I would say it was probably before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, which many people might be familiar with some of the symptoms. Uh, similar to post-COVID or long COVID, the fatigue, some brain fog, uh, which makes it more difficult to do things, uh, particularly after a long day at work. So pre-COVID, I was feeling quite isolated uh, because there was things I would like to do, but didn't have the energy to do. So attend union meetings, attend book clubs, Uh, But now everything's on Zoom, uh, so I have the energy or the ability to attend after work because I can get into my pajamas (laughs) and uh, join from my living room couch. And I've heard from other people with uh, disabilities that it's been a real asset to them as well, and they're actually feeling less lonely. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's just kind of a side of the pandemic that lots of people haven't really thought about, that it has been a way for 
people who were isolated pre-COVID to actually connect. Yeah, no, it's a great insight and I think counterintuitive to a lot of people because when I first heard that the person, first person we're going to be talking to <laughs> is someone who talks about loneliness and the impact that the pandemic had on her loneliness, I of course thought it was going to be the other way around, that it became even more acute. And I think we'll hear that from people on the program today. Um, we all have, I think, or virtually everybody who's listening or watching now has experience with uh, turning to Zoom or FaceTime or some other sort of technology during the pandemic and continuing to do that. So it was better than what you had before. Um, Did you feel like you were making meaningful connections to people? Oh, definitely. And still am. Uh, And connecting with people I may not have before, because it's also a way for people from smaller communities to uh, connect. I was uh, chatting with somebody from the Regina Public Library, and she said they've never had so many people attend events uh, because it's virtual. So they're getting a lot of moms with young kids who couldn't attend before uh, attending virtual things. And my the social committee at my workplace once a month does a virtual friendship bench. Uh, where they have different rooms that you can go into and connect with people about a topic. Uh, And it's people, colleagues you may not have connected with otherwise, because people kind of tend to go into their friends groups. Uh, But this is just a new way to meet new colleagues, and some of them have become friends. So I definitely think that there needs to be a bit more planning sometimes when it comes to virtual connections but it is definitely possible. And I guess maybe we can leave people, Jessica, with this uh, advice for those who are listening about connecting with friends or family, especially those who may be isolated. I guess your message to them would be, A, do it, and B, do it using technology. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And organizations can maybe keep in mind uh, folks who need to attend virtually. I know With my request, uh, my church is now doing most things hybrid so that you can attend in person or virtually and still be included in Mm -hmm. book club and Bible study, uh, no matter which way works better for you. All right, Jessica, thank you very much. And the fact that the signal is starting to break up a little bit is a reminder, of course, that technology does have some limitations. But it's fantastic that you, first of all, reached out to us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. People can continue to do that. And your message is really interesting as well. We're live here on Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing in Vancouver. Our main topic, when was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? We are looking forward to hearing stories about uh, about loneliness and the impact on you, the fact that it's more... I think some people underestimate the impact of loneliness, um, but at the same time, as we heard from Jessica, uh, there are lots of hopeful stories there too, lots of practical advice to try to connect people at a time when uh, people sometimes are feeling disconnected. Uh, let's go to Adatola Adudipe, who came to Canada from South Africa in 2015. She is in Calgary today. How are you? I'm okay, Ian. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well. So you were 20 years old when you first came to Canada. You left uh, all your friends behind in Africa. You continue your university education uh, here. Uh, when did you start realizing that, that you were you were feeling lonely? Uh, well, that's a great question, Ian. Um, so as you said, I came here when I was 20. I um, actually graduated last year 
um, from the University of Cal- Thank you. Um, sorry, not last year. It is 2023. It was 2021. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and so I graduated from a degree from the University of Calgary from the Faculty of Kinesiology. And I felt lonely as soon as I got here. I probably felt lonely just before I got here. I probably felt lonely on the plane um, because human emotions are such a complex thing. And so is immigration. So what I found was that um, I found myself missing home. I found myself in a space where now I went from being a majority to being a minority, but also in a different, completely different continent. Um, so I found myself trying to be understood all the time. And I think it's a universal experience for human beings. Like all we're trying to do every day of our lives is to understand and be understood. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're an immigrant, it seems like you're trying to be understood, but also be understanding of the culture around you. Um, so I found myself being um, like missing home all the time. And it was it was it was kind of like a rough experience to have to try to adjust and kind of find my place in this new place, um, especially at that age where it's such a huge transition already mm-hmm. from high school to university. But now I also had to transition to a completely new um, setting and as a completely new identity, because now I was an immigrant as well. And I'd never been an immigrant before. Yeah, you, you, there's so much that's interesting there. And and one of them is that you are coming to a university campus, like one of the biggest campuses in the yeah. country, University of Calgary. The, obviously, a lot of students there who would be international students, right? Or yeah. and, and so I, I assume that there are international student organizations, that there are other students who would be yeah. going through what you went through. Um, yeah. Did But that, I mean, to what extent did that help you or not help you deal with your loneliness? No, yeah, well, of course, there were things on campus like the like the international student services. Um, but to be very honest, at the time as well, um, you also have to find the time to get there. So when I first got here, like you know, now you suddenly have classes. Now there's all these new people you have to meet. There's figuring out things like buying your books. There's also all the financial things that are um, associated with being an immigrant. There's all these things happening, and so kind of your first thing in your mind isn't just to go to the international student services. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but and also they weren't open all the time. Um, and of course, you know, international students were not a monolith, like not all of us are going to just get together in one place all the time. Um, so sometimes it was hard to find the time to do that. Um, I also worked two jobs while I was in undergrad and I was on the dino squash team. So I didn't have a lot of like time to just, you know, always go to student services, especially when they were open and available. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I had to find my place, especially like University of Calgary is like they were a lot of international students, but specifically at the University of Calgary, specifically in my faculty, um, it was a predominantly uh, white faculty as well. I was probably one of the only black people in my lectures for like a year or so. There's maybe like two of us. Um, so with that also comes a different kind of loneliness, um, especially when it comes to lecture content. Um, there's a time when, you know, in a class mm-hmm. of about race and ethnicity, I seem to be the only one to speak out against a prejudiced comment. And I was congratulated for it afterwards by my peers. But then in the moment, I thought I was not supported because no one else spoke up except mm-hmm. for me. So those are the kinds of like incidents that make you feel like you you are alone in that space. Um, and, you know, in the end, being the being the immigrant in the class, you feel like, oh, I have now had to shoulder this responsibility. And do I speak up? When do I not speak up? Do I speak up today? Mm-hmm. Um, I can be like it can be very stressful. 
Yeah, we're speaking live with Adetola Adudipe, who came to Canada from South Africa in 2015. And uh, we're live here, by the way, as I mentioned, on Cross Country Checkup. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. If you'd like to be part of the program, our question, when was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? And you can also connect with us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. Adetola, one of the things you said that I think... You see, I'm so fascinated uh, to speak to Mm -hmm. people on the program today about the way they experienced loneliness and what contributed to it. You were on a squash team or with a group of people who Mm -hmm. played squash. You you Mm -hmm. had a couple of jobs, so there would have been Mm -hmm. a working group there. You were Mm -hmm. a kinesiology student, so you're in classrooms Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet none of those groups of people um, were like that wasn't enough. You were still lonely even in the midst of all that. Yes, um, 100%. I feel like anyone university can understand the feeling when you're surrounded by people and still feel lonely, mm-hmm. um, especially in the, all those groups that you mentioned in, on the squash team. I was the only black person and immigrant at my jobs. I was the only black person and immigrant um, in my lectures. I was probably the only black person. And so like even in those spaces where there's seemingly so many people, sometimes it's hard to find those moments to connect, similar to like how people still feel, um, especially like during the pandemic, you still feel um, you still feel alone, even though there's so many ways to connect. Um, there's like those mental barriers, those communication uh, barriers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, especially being an immigrant, when um, you learn people's reactions when you say certain things. So there'd be times when I would mention if I was homesick um, and those kinds of things, and I would get kind of this backlash and saying like, oh, maybe, maybe just go home. Um, Maybe try skiing in the winter. You'll find it fun. But those things still won't make me feel less homesick. And so just like that barrier of people not trying to understand that I am grateful to be here. But at the same time, I do miss, I do miss my home. I do miss where I come from. I still miss that comfort of not being isolated mm-hmm. um and just having that understanding and 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 listening to listening to people because in the end like that's all we all want as people is to, to be heard to be listened to and instead of silence someone trying to just throw solutions at you just hearing you and feeling and feeling heard um so yeah so that can be that can be hard when you are surrounded by so many people and yeah. you are supposed to be social um and so when you do find yourself you know um hesitant to do that based on other com- other conversations you might have had, um, then it's like, oh, well, there were so many people around you. How could you be lonely? Yeah. But now we're seeing like with this segment, like Canadians, people all over Canada are feeling lonely, but there are so many of us. How can, so how can so many of us be lonely at the same time? Yeah. So, around- yeah, so it's just a different experience as a, as an immigrant, but everyone yeah. is, everyone can feel that way. Yeah. Well, you're certainly being listened to now and I appreciate uh, hearing your story. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Adetola Adudipe is a student, well, was a student, just graduated, moved to Canada from South Africa in 2015, and we reached her in Calgary. Uh, Later in the program, by the way, we're looking for your questions on gender-affirming care for youth. You may have seen the news coverage from Alberta as the government announces it's going to make sweeping changes to its laws around treatments for young people. Uh, So that includes access to puberty blockers and certain surgeries. And it occurs to us that beyond the 
emotion of the story and the ideological differences that often surround the story, you might be just looking for some facts about how kids in Canada are treated. So we have a pediatric endocrinologist who works at BC Children's Hospital. He's coming in, uh, or at least he'll be available to us, and you'll be able to ask him questions in the last half hour of the program. You can also email questions to us here, checkup at cbc.ca. Um, and as always, you can call us at one 416 Our question this week for the main portion of the show, when was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? Well, let's bring in a guest who uh, will be able to give us some insight into what causes loneliness, uh, how it's treated. Dr. Diane McIntosh is a psychiatrist, and she'll be with us for the rest of the show to respond to your calls. And she is in Vancouver today. Dr. McIntosh, hi. Hi there. Uh, A Stats Canada survey from 2021 found that one in 10 Canadians over the age of 15 reported always or often feeling lonely. Research also suggests that loneliness is increasing among Canadians. Uh, Dr. McIntosh, why do you think this is happening? Well, I think there are a lot of different factors underlying this, and certainly the pandemic did not help. But I think Jessica and Adatola really brought forward a lot of really interesting, different um, I, I think perspectives of why people may be feeling more and more lonely. And so expand on that a little bit. Well, loneliness is is a very personal experience. It's deeply personal and also highly distressing. It really is your experience of feeling like you your personal connections are missing or inadequate or not fulfilling. And there are different ways that people experience this. When you think about social loneliness, this is uh, that you feel like you don't have enough people around you. Your social network is too small. And then there's this emotional loneliness that you feel like you lack intimacy or a deep connection, that you don't have a real attachment in your relationships. I think one of the uh, important things that, that came up just from one of your guests a moment ago is the fact that you can be lonely even when you're surrounded by people. And that can be isolating in itself because people think, well, there's all these people around you. How mm-hmm. on earth could you be lonely? But many of the patients that I have had over the years have actually on paper looked like they were very socially isolated, but denied experiencing loneliness. Maybe it's because they had you know, great coworkers that, that supported them or, and you can't discount the power of a beloved pet to make you feel secure and loved and fulfilled. So this is really a personal experience as well. Even people who would describe themselves as a loner or an introvert, they appreciate the time that they're alone and they feel like they thrive when they're alone. They re- very rarely avoid social connections completely. And that's because we're social beings. We're dependent on others, and it's actually necessary for our survival. So when we leave home, like Adatola did, that's a wrenching experience of leaving your culture, your loved ones, for work or for school. You think of yourself as being more independent, but in fact, we are dependent on others. And those strong social supports are the greatest protector of our mental health. And then when you think about people like older people, uh, people living with a disability, groups that are vulnerable or marginalized, you're even more vulnerable to loneliness. 
We're here with Dr. Diane McIntosh, a psychiatrist. Our question today on cross-country checkup, when was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? You can call us at 1-888-416-8333. Dr. McIntosh, I'm thinking here you are, a psychiatrist, kind of high up on the uh, sort of, you know, uh, medical scale when it comes to, like, for somebody to see you, they've been referred to you from their uh, their general uh, practitioner. Um does anyone come in to see a psychiatrist because of loneliness or is it something else that's happening, other symptoms they're having, and then you kind of tease loneliness out of that? Well, generally, someone would come to see me because they have a serious mental illness, but loneliness is often a part of that. And as I was mentioning, we know as healthcare professionals, mental health professionals, that social support is our greatest protector of our mental health. But if you're living with depression, for instance, that that promotes worthlessness, hopelessness, helplessness. And so that leaves people feeling lonely and isolated. It, I will make the point, though, that loneliness is not a mental illness, but it can have massive physical and mental health consequences, which is why Dr. Murthy, uh, his report was so well received and so important. Yeah, so he's the U.S. Surgeon General, and he says in his report that uh, even as a doctor, he did not realize what a, an acute problem loneliness was until he became Surgeon General, until he started going across the country. And one of the things that he found, and I just wanted to read the direct quote, uh, the number of people that he found who were, quote, isolated, invisible, and insignificant, exactly what, what you touched on as well. You're going to be with us for uh, the main portion of the program, so we'll come back to you. But I, I do want to touch on something that I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, over the next hour, and that is for people who are listening who are feeling that acute loneliness, what, uh, what suggestions do you have for them? Well, I think that actually having Jessica and Anatola speak, listening to what they were saying, I think that would, many of those ideas are really great ones. Trying to reach out, you know, I, I should make the point, if you're struggling with a mental illness, the most important thing to do is to seek help. And I know that's difficult right now. Access to mental health care is challenging, but that doesn't mean that you have to go to your doctor or nurse practitioner. If you can, That that's fantastic. But seeking help from other organizations that have uh, support, peer support networks, making those connections, even if they're... Uh, a little bit difficult starting virtually, as, as Jessica said, I think can make a huge difference for people. I love the fact that she talked about the fact uh, something positive that came out of the pandemic. Yeah, no she kidding. was struggling beforehand. Yep. And this was her way of being able to reach out to other people. And there are a lot of people who are quite isolated with painful disorders. They're not able to go out. Having that virtual connection can can really have an impact not only on their physical well-being, but also on their emotional well-being. Yeah, it was really interesting. And I'm glad we kicked off the show with her. And I'm glad we have you on the program as well. And uh, and you kindly are agreeing to stay with us. So I will uh, check back with you after we talk to some callers. Dr. Diane McIntosh, a psychiatrist here in Vancouver. Our number on cross-country checkup is one 888 You can also make comments or say that you'd like to be on the program by going online to CBC slash aircheck. I'm Ian Hannah Mansing in Vancouver, and uh, Ron Lemire is in Merritt, British Columbia. Hi, Ron. Uh, hello. When was the last time you felt lonely? Well, <laughs> I generally um, I lost my wife a couple of years ago, so I uh, 
I've learned to cope with it. Mm-hmm. But basically what I wanted to maybe pass on to some of your listeners is just something that has more to do with social connections. Okay. Um, I'm a local musician. I've been mm-hmm. playing for over 40 years uh, in local communities. And uh, over the last 40 years, local um, entertainment industry uh, has disappeared. We used to have tens of thousands of local musicians all across North America, and now there's virtually none. In my own community here, we used to have, every weekend, there would be six or seven bands playing. Mm-hmm. And they'd be playing in the bars and the legions and Elks clubs and so on. And everything was a, quite a social thing. Every mm-hmm. weekend was quite a big deal. All Lots of people went out, and they uh, met their neighbors and talked and entertained. And, and, and I'm not talking about getting drunk, because I can't recall ever seeing anybody at any of my dances that were actually drunk. Mm-hmm. But they go out and they they would meet with their neighbors and talk and discuss things and that and that's all disappeared in the last forty years. In the last forty years, because I was about to ask you whether this was a pandemic thing. So, pandemic aside, why do you think things have changed? At least in your experience in in Merritt, which is a, a small town uh, in you know I guess the interior of British Columbia. Well, I know what what changed. The uh, liquor laws changed. Hmm. Uh, in the seventies and eighties, and by the eighties, most most establishments had closed down, and mo- there wasn't any bands playing anymore. And the reason was because of the liquor laws. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the liquor laws. What the results of it was, people would, couldn't go out anymore because they were afraid of getting their cars impounded and couldn't go to work and all the rest of that. So they stopped going out. And when they stopped going out, they didn't spend any money at the clubs and the bars and that. So the, they couldn't afford bands to play for music. So the whole music, local music industry, totally collapsed. Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, hopefully, hopefully people can go out and enjoy music without having to drink so much that they're worried about getting caught driving home. You know, I was just talking actually to some people about how uh, two generations ago, perhaps, drinking and driving, it was so prevalent and it's not now and that's a good thing. Uh, yeah. But uh, I feel like asking Matthias, uh, who works with me here, to come on the air because he's a musician who seems to do regular gigs. So there are some gigs out there, Ron, that uh, yeah, you just... I, I understand that. Yeah. I perfectly understand that. What I'm talking about is generally right across the whole country. Sure. There are a few people playing, but I'm not talking about people going out and drunk, getting drunk or anything like that. I'm just talking about no entertainment. Yeah. I hear you. And I think the, the, the bigger point, Ron, if I may, is that there are certain things that can happen in a community, especially small community. Well, you know what? Cities as well, right? That like going to a club and hearing music, which actually could be isolating as well, but if it's set up in a way that people can interact, uh, not just the people you go there with, but everybody, uh, that would be fantastic. Ron, thank you very much for calling. Our question here on Cross Country Checkup, when was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? Uh, Glenn Royal contacted us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. He says, for most of my life, I've dealt with anxiety and PTSD. I didn't have any real or close friends growing up, and my family didn't understand my mental health issues. To get through the loneliness, I put energy into reading books and my interest in successful business people and the investment industry. 
Two other comments we also got on air check. Andrea Radcliffe, I worked a night job for eight years. Seeing my friends in person or phone chats were rare. I couldn't participate in hobbies, take any evening classes or even volunteer, places where you tend to meet new people. I have no family anymore. I'm now on disability for mental distress. I miss conversations, laughing and hugs. I'm in my 50s now, so I worry I'll never have those things again. And that hurts my heart. I think made will be the answer once the provision is in place. Well, that, uh, yeah, that's uh, an interesting uh, comment from Andrea. Catherine Hamill uh, said to us via air check, I fill my pockets with dog treats. I ask first, of course, if your canine can have a treat. The furry one traveling the sidewalk will go beyond ecstatic. Then usually a conversation happens. The furry one will never forget you, will be excited to see you again, and often your new friends and be your new friends as well. So that uh, that's interesting. Remember, Dr. McIntosh was saying pets can help out, so I suppose somebody else's pet can help out as well. Let's go to St. John, New Brunswick. Now Roxanne Cormier is uh, calling us. Hi, Roxanne. Hi. What's your perspective on loneliness? Well, it's interesting just listening to some of the other people chatting. Um, my perspective is a little bit different because mm-hmm. I'm a senior. I'm 68, and... Uh, I'm not into technology like a lot of the uh, younger people are, so I don't do Zoom. And I'm kind of old school in that I like contact with people. Mm -hmm. I like to be able to sit across from them and talk to them and engage in conversation. And guess, like the doctor had mentioned, looking for that connection. And so I'm recently widowed. It's been almost two years, Mm -hmm. and I also had to move. Plus, I'm a cancer survivor, so I've had had a little bit of life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now being by myself with my husband passed, and I was his caregiver for a few years, uh, went into retirement from a professional position and uh, have no siblings, no children. Mm-hmm. My good friends are not really handy. And uh, one lady is not too far away in Fredericton. Mm-hmm. But it makes it difficult because they all have their families and their responsibilities and their grandchildren and children and, you know, different priorities than, than what I do. Yep. So it makes it difficult through no fault of their own, but just makes it difficult to have that connection or to be able to get as much time with them as I'd like. Yep. So I've had to be proactive and try and reach out myself and having a really good grief counselor and had been in counseling for quite some time, even during my husband's illness. And so she was a wonderful resource and she put me in touch with the Red Cross who has what's called the Friendly Calls program. Yeah, I see that in the notes here, Roxanne. And and, uh, give me the brief description of the Red Cross Friendly Calls program. Well, I think it's wonderful, and and I I came across it on social media, what Mm -hmm. little bit of social media I do do, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it was basically just kind of like a, well, I don't know if it would be like a peer support program, but it's just someone to talk to. Yeah. They're they're not therapists or counselors, they're friends. How, how uh, How long do the phone calls last? Um, well, you kind of can set 
your own time. Mm-hmm. I chatted to a lady last week. It's the same lady. What they try and do, if I can just go back for a minute, is match you up mm-hmm. with someone maybe closer to your age or in the same age group or mm-hmm. has the same life experience, and uh, they set up weekly calls with you. Mm-hmm. So they check in with you every week, and you can talk anywhere from a half an hour to an hour or until you get tired. Yeah, and, and what difference does it make in your life? Well, it's kind of nice to know that there's someone there that really doesn't know me mm-hmm. at all and someone to connect with through, I guess, shared experiences because she's a widow as well mm-hmm. and she doesn't have any children or siblings or anything like that. And she's from another country, like uh, one of the other ladies that had mm-hmm. spoken on the program. Mm-hmm. So. You know, we have a bit of a connection, and we get to know each other, and basically she's a sounding board to maybe help me with resources or give yep. me tips or ideas about things that I can do. And Yeah, so Roxanne, that, great, that, yeah. sorry. No, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Finish your thought, No, please. that's okay. Yeah, I was just... <laughs> You you go ahead. You go, you go ahead. ahead. No, no, I'm not going to talk anymore. You're going ahead. <laughs> it, it's just, I'm surprised I haven't heard of this program before that and that I came across it on social media because I think it's a wonderful program. When I was living in Vancouver, as I know that's where you are, and I wasn't very far from where your your station is. I, I worked at uh, BC Hydro. Hmm. I um, was matched matched up with um, a cancer connection-friendly program through mm-hmm. the BC Cancer Agency, which was something like this. So I think those are wonderful resources for people yep. and easy to reach out to. I guess it's just a matter of finding them. Yeah, Roxanne, thank you very much. I'm so happy that you called today. Thank you. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing in Vancouver. When was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? Our number is 1-888-416-8333. cbc.ca slash aircheck is a way to reach us as well. And I just want to quickly check in with Dr. Diane McIntosh, a psychiatrist who uh, we spoke to and who's listening in for this main portion of the show. And Dr. McIntosh, as you hear Roxanne talking about, it's just a single phone call once a week, but it's clearly important to her. Uh, What were you thinking when you heard that? I was thinking, Ian, why exactly do you need me? Because your (laughs) callers are, I think, filling up the, uh, all of these ideas are just fantastic. But I was writing madly as, as Roxanne was speaking, because I think she brought up so many really important points. I think community organizations, and they can be things like very general, like the uh, Red Cross, but Meals on Wheels, health-related organizations, I have a connection with the Mood Disorders Society of Canada, the, the Canadian Cancer Society, the Alzheimer's Society. You know, caregivers for people who are living with dementia can become extremely isolated and lonely. And part of those organizations, their mandate is actually to do exactly what they're doing for Roxanne. They're they're helping to support those individuals who are living with cancer or they're going through periods of grief. But I also want to make the point that the benefit is both for the person who's volunteering for the organization and for the participant. One of the greatest gifts I think we have is our ability to 
take care or help other people. And from that, you know, if you're feeling quite isolated, volunteering can be an incredible gift that you give yourself as well as someone else. Mm -hmm. Well, you're on the program, not only because of your expertise, but because you are just great at explaining the uh, psychiatrist's perspective on this loneliness issue. So we appreciate having you. And uh, I will come back to you a few times uh, over the next 45 minutes. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, Let's go to another expert now. Mitchell Reardon is an urban planner and co-founder of the urban design consulting firm called Happy Cities. His organization researches how to design neighborhoods and that uh, in a way that increases the, the number of connections that you might have. And Mitchell joins us also from Vancouver today. Hi. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, taking part. So when we think about a, and I don't even know if, if this is the way we describe it, a, a lonely or unhappy neighborhood, what, what sort of things do you picture? Well, uh, a lonely neighborhood can take many forms. Uh, It could be a really dense setting with small, overcrowded apartments. Um, It could be a dispersed area where people spend a lot of time driving in between places, you know, jobs, schools, groceries, kid activities, and otherwise. It can be a place with a lot of population turnover or somewhere with deep financial inequality. Uh, you did some interesting research where where people were pretending to be tourists, and 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 so the research tracked who helped them out, how they helped them out, the setting. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so a few years ago, um, we uh, conducted an experiment uh, called Lost Tourists uh, in Seattle. And we picked two streets uh, a couple of blocks apart in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. One was a street with some small shops and cafes and townhomes, lots to look at, uh, narrow buildings right next to each other. And the other one was a long blank concrete wall. And so our lost tourists went out on these two streets. And uh, step one was to look so lost that people would stop to offer help. And we found that people were five times more likely to stop at the street with the shops and cafes and townhomes than the one with the long blank wall. If the people stopped, then the lost tourists would explain they were looking to meet a friend at a nearby park and couldn't find it. And they'd move to step two and say, my phone is dead. Um, could I borrow yours to call my friend? Nobody at the blank wall let the lost tourists borrow their phone. Hmm. Whether they, they got to borrow the phone or not, they moved on to step three, which was, I know this park is right around here. I'm hopeless with directions. Could you just take me there? And people at the uh, street with the shops and cafes were four times more likely to agree to do so than uh, the blank wall. And in one case, once they arrived at the park and met their friend, our lost tourist was even asked out on a date. And the findings (laughs) from this park, so much more that we've done at Happy Cities, indicate again and again that the way we design our spaces can influence how we perceive and interact with each other and maybe even impact our romantic lives. (laughs) Okay, so one direct lesson there is don't have a big blank wall if you're trying to get people to interact. But beyond that, give me maybe a couple of examples of urban design that encourages interaction and maybe combats loneliness. Well, we did a really interesting study with Vancouver Coastal Health uh, last year, where we surveyed 1,900 residents throughout the lower mainland of BC and asked them about the buildings they lived in, um, about their well-being, things like general happiness, physical and mental health, social ties, and their sense of trust and belonging with neighbors. And then we also looked at the neighborhood characteristics, things like population density, distance to transit, and access to nearby parks. And the most fascinating thing that we, we discovered here was that higher density didn't result in lower happiness. People could be happy in detached homes, they could be happy in duplexes or townhomes and even high density apartment buildings. They could also be unhappy in each of these places. 
What really mattered for well-being was whether people had access to local shops, services, jobs, and other destinations, Things, a lot of things to do locally and within an easy reach of their places. Um, we found that people with shorter commutes uh, were more likely to have more social ties and thus were reporting to be happier. And the people that live near parks uh, felt a stronger sense of trust in their communities. And the things that were not great for happiness were basement suites uh, in general were associated with lower social connections and that people that lived in really small units uh, under 300 square feet also reported lower well-being on average. Yeah, I, I would say on a personal, very anecdotal level that the combination of living near a few shops, just about maybe three blocks away from where I am in Vancouver, uh, you know, uh, makes a difference because you see people there over and over again that you you get to sort of know. Um, but, you know, the other thing for me is is being obsessed with steps. Like ever since, uh, you know, Fitbits and other step counters uh, became a big thing and now I'm kind of like, I got to go out and get my steps, I meet and interact with so many people in the neighborhood that way in a way I never did before. Um, I don't know if you've done research on that, but you must have sort of uh, see other examples of that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, just having that opportunity to interact, like that little bit of friction, you know, you're not inside a car, um, you have a chance to, to interact, maybe it's a nod, maybe it's just seeing each other and the eighth time you do so, um, mm -hmm. you have a chance to, to say hello. We've heard a bunch of people talking about the benefits of pets in terms of being able to meet new folks super common. Um, and even just, um, you know, having porches and other space where you could observe what's uh, taking place without actively participating and then decide, oh, this looks really nice. You know, there's an interesting conversation going on, on the street. I'm going to go and join it. But then if it feels like, you know, it's getting uncomfortable or, or you are getting tired and you can just retreat back, it can make a huge difference as well. Yeah. So small design features really can impact how we get to know our neighbors and communities. Yeah. One last thing, and I have a lot of calls, so I want to get to them, but, but I do want to ask you this. I I know when you talk to our producer, you mentioned a small park in Vancouver's West End and how it's an example of, of how public spaces can, can help uh, reduce loneliness. So explain to us kind of briefly, I think it's Jim Deaver Park. How's that an example of, of kind of urban design helping with uh, the issue of loneliness? Well, that was a really good example of, of taking underused space, in this case, underused road space and reclaiming it for people. And this is a really powerful example just in that, you know, we're talking about housing and, and big things, and these are big, costly, long-term changes. But then there's these small things that you can do in communities across the country. And so at Jim Deva, they reclaimed this road space and turned it into a plaza. They put in seating. Uh, there's a bandstand. Uh, there's game sites there regularly. There's all sorts of activities. And in uh, being able to offer these things, uh, you're able to bring folks uh, together. Uh, they can sit and observe or they can interact in, in ways that just wouldn't be possible. And um, Early in the pandemic, um, we were doing a little study there and um, a fellow came up, he'd uh, seen that one of us had a computer and uh, he had his tablet, was asking about Wi-Fi um, and uh, how to connect. And, you know, it was just sort of a way of starting the conversation. And um, we talked for five, 10 minutes about weather, lockdown, all sorts of things. And as he was leaving, he said, you know, thank you for this. This is the first real conversation I've had, you know, since lockdown started. And mm -hmm. we've seen this across the country. There was a Canadian Healthy Communities Initiative was an Infrastructure Canada program uh, launched in 2021 that founded a thousand projects across the country, coast to coast to coast. And, you know, it was things like taking away underused road space, putting plastic chairs in a grassy section near a cul-de-sac, offering a free community stage. And what we found was that these were boosting social connection, supporting social and mental health, enhancing safety and comfort, and creating a, a sense of uh, inclusion and belonging. Yeah. And 
Canadians from all walks of life took part, which was really fascinating, like Halifax, Dawson City, Red Deer, Silton, Saskatchewan, Gilt Gap First Nation in northern BC. And the desire to connect, to feel good, meeting friends, loved ones, and even strangers is a unifying trait among Canadians. And that yeah. is a really positive thing for combating loneliness. Yeah, that is fantastic. Mitchell, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Mitchell Reardon is an urban planner and co-founder of the consulting firm Happy Cities, and he is here in Vancouver. Stay tuned to our program. We want to get some questions from you on gender-affirming care. Alberta announced some sweeping changes this week to its policies around uh, some surgeries for youth and around gender identity in school sports. Uh, we're not going to go into the political debate or the ideological divide, but we are going to speak to an expert, a pediatric endocrinologist who deals with young people um, on these issues and uh, he's going to be here to answer your questions. So you can use the same numbers to take part in our main show topic, which is loneliness, and also for the Ask Me Anything in the last half hour. Those numbers are 888-416-8333 if you'd like to call us or you can text us at 226-758-8924. When's the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? Bob Garthson is in Cobalt, Ontario. Hi, Bob. Hi. Hi. Coburg, Ontario. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no problem. And uh, when's the last time you felt lonely? Well, uh, my wife died suddenly in August of uh, 2022. Mm. Um, we had just moved to a new community. Uh, I didn't know my neighbors. And uh, I'm 76 years old. I'm a, a cancer survivor, a heavy metal poison survivor. Mm -hmm. I had vertigo at the time. And um, life was pretty tough for a while. I must say, though, I've had a very fortunate life. And um, I decided after several months of difficult time and after getting some counseling through a friend and having close family and friend connections, um, that I would re-engage in the activities that uh, were important to me. I'm, uh, I've been an organic regenerative farmer for over 50 years. So I was involved in community gardens and helping with charity gardens and other projects. I've been a climate activist and I got re-engaged through Zoom and direct connections with people across the community, Ontario, Canada, and the world. And I work on uh, Indigenous issues. So I, I got busy uh, mostly on Zoom because of, because of COVID, but uh, now I'm more and more engaged and and teaching people about uh, sustainable gardening practices and, and working in my community with the food bank and others to, to build a vibrant community. Yeah, you know, I see those community gardens in Vancouver and usually I, I just kind of think about one of the reasons they're there, often they're in places where there used to be gas stations and they haven't remediated the uh, the soil yet. They can't use it for other purposes. So they put in, you know, boxes of soil and people have community gardens. What I hadn't thought about, Bob, and I should have, is how important those community gardens are for the people who are taking part to connect with each other. So once you started doing that, you, you, did you, you must have felt that less lonely. Well, all those things that I did, definitely. And, and I built uh, six raised beds in my backyard of my new property. Mm -hmm. And by spring, I was be able, being able to provide my neighbors with fresh vegetables. And that was a way of building bridges and getting to know them. And uh, I've been able to share that knowledge uh, with people around Northumberland, uh, the county, and, and with others. And uh, we're, we're working in a positive direction to help people have local food security. 
Did you know those neighbors before or did you knock on the door and meet some of them the first time with a a bag of, uh, or, you know, a handful of carrots? Well, it's interesting. I I had met some of them before, but as I said, we just moved in. We didn't know anybody, mm-hmm. but um, um, they were very interested in the fact that I was doing these gardens, and they could see the soil being moved to the back of the property, and um, they wanted to come over and see it. And, and some of them had children, and the children were so excited that, matter of fact, they want to greet me every time they saw me after that. But the, my the family next door with three children under six. Uh, they brought the children over to get things in the gardens, and the parents the next day says the first time the kids had been willing to eat, wanted to eat fresh vegetables. <laughs> so, All right. Uh, so lots of benefits here, Bob. Thank you very much for calling. You're welcome. Our next caller is in Vancouver. Catherine McKinnis is on the line. Hi, Catherine. Hello, Ian. <clears throat> on this beautiful, sunny day, finally. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. I, I went out for a walk, actually, just before uh, we went on the air, and it is absolutely a beautiful day. And, and it you're, is. Um, so, yeah. on this beautiful day in Vancouver, let's speak about a, yes. a topic that's a bit overcast, and that's loneliness, and how has it affected you? Well, I'll do the Reader's Digest and okay. say I had, a, I had a lot of loneliness even since childhood. It mm-hmm. was just the growing up as a, effectively an only child. But I'm happy to say that uh, the last time that I experienced loneliness was 12 years ago. And um, that was because of uh, a real life-changing opportunity to go. I I also had quite severe depression, Mm -hmm. three episodes during my life, um, and had the opportunity to go to this facility in Ontario for treatment. And and truly, it it was life-changing. And I guess what my primary uh, statement I wanted to make uh, for people, if they are feeling lonely, reach out. Um, It's not always easy to get help, uh, but sometimes even just reaching out, whether it doesn't have to be medical initially unless you need it. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be family. It can be friends. And I guess the other thing that helped me through some really lonely times, uh, A, as this previous gentleman spoke, wow, you know, he's been doing all the right things, Um, staying active, getting involved in his community. Um, That makes such a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, because when we're lonely, we isolate ourselves. And when we isolate ourselves, if we already have any predisposition to depression, it, you fall into that black hole pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah. yeah. And when and, you uh, reached out, and Catherine, when you reached out to family or friends for connection and for a handout, uh, like emotionally, uh, how did they respond? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm so blessed, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't always easy because... Um, you know, you feel like you're 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 the you're the ill one in the family. You're mm-hmm. the whiner, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and I think a lot of that stems. Uh, thankfully, some of the stigma is uh, you know improving, yep. but it's still there. And I believe the biggest part of that is that illnesses of the brain. I prefer to call them. Yes. <laughs> um, yep. We cannot see them. And so you can't have a Band-Aid, you can't have a cast on your arm. And um, so people just, they don't understand. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, volunteering, a definite key one. Um, You've probably heard the term, fake it till you make it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) definitely. All right. Um, Yeah, and um, uh, I, I... Kind of at the darkest times, uh, even in Vancouver, you know, how it'll rain week after week after week. Mm -hmm. Find somewhere you love and go there. Um, I used to go to the Queen Elizabeth Observatory every Mm -hmm. now and again because it was warm and hot. Yeah, so the Bloedel Um, Conservatory, for people who don't know, is is just a a glass uh, structure, not just a glass structure, it's beautiful. You go inside Mm -hmm. there and you go from a cold, rainy day to all of a sudden it's like a big hug. You go inside there and it's beautiful. Yeah, and you know, and and there are lots of things out there for free uh, if you're if you're fortunate enough to be yep. able to to walk or bike. Yeah. Um, and I I truly do uh, find the joy in every day, and yeah. um, it can be very simple: the birds chirping, the first flower coming through, uh, and you make it a few odd looks when you're walking along the sidewalks, but just. Smile and say hello to people. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of wisdom in what you're saying. Thank you very much. Yeah, okay, and you take good care. I will. Uh, let's go very briefly to Dr. Diane McIntosh, the psychiatrist who's with us. You know, we have, actually, as I look at the time, Dr. McIntosh, I'm just going to have to tease our audience and let them know I'm going to come back to you at uh, after the top of the hour. So uh, you're kind enough to stay with us, and I will uh, come back to you to talk about some of the things that we've heard from the callers. But for those of you who are watching on CBC News Network, we're about to sign off, and you're about to see Rosemary Barton live, unless you decide you want to continue connecting with this program, and we'll continue to be on uh, CBC Radio. And our topic is when was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? So we continue on radio, but for those of you on television, thanks for watching. Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Front Burner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup live on CBC Radio. We have about 30 minutes left on our main topic. And then it's our Ask Me Anything. We're going to answer your questions about medical treatments for transgender youth. The topic surfaced in the news again this week, this time when Alberta Premier Danielle Smith announced a series of policy changes, including proposals on access to hormone therapy and gender surgery. The actual legislation won't be formally drafted for months, but we want to take a step back and look at the health issues being discussed for transgender youth. So we'll be talking to Dr. Daniel Metzger. He's a pediatric endocrinologist who has been dealing with with this issue for decades. So whether you live in Alberta or anywhere else in the country, you may have questions about what kind of medical treatments are available for transgender minors, what actually happens in doctor's offices and the relationship that patients have with their parents and the medical profession. You can actually start calling now if you'd like to ask those questions in our AMA. Our number is one 888 416 You can also text us 226-758-8924. And though it may sound confusing, but I hope it doesn't, you can use those two numbers as well to continue to weigh in on our main topic about loneliness. 
But before we get to that, I want to let you know we are watching developments on a massive snowstorm that is hitting the Maritimes right now. Cape Breton has declared a state of emergency as the region braces for up to 150 centimetres of snow. The Nova Scotia government is asking people to stay off the roads. This is hitting Prince Edward Island hard and parts of New Brunswick. Blair Sanderson is the host of the call-in show Maritime Connection, and he was speaking to people affected by the storm just before cross-country checkup came on the air. He joins us from Halifax. Hi, Blair. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing in snowy Halifax? Well, we're doing pretty well, and what we've been uh, hearing from our callers, though, is that uh, it is very snowy, very windy, and all of this uh, is relentless. Uh, This system started passing through our region on Friday night. People woke up yesterday, started digging out, fairly customary so far, but then the snow didn't stop, and by midday yesterday, we were seeing cars getting stuck on secondary roads, people having to be pushed out. People starting to realize more snow is coming. Fast forward to today, more snow still, and it is still going. As you mentioned, uh, up to 150 uh, centimeters of snow possible in parts of Cape Breton. That's a meter and a half. We can actually dispense with the centimeters and go right to uh, a meter or more. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing, Ian, though, is it's not just uh, these average snowfall amounts that are impressive. It's the the high winds. They're creating these massive drifts. So one woman on the show we spoke with... um, talked about uh, a big snowbank being past the midway mark uh, of her windows in her house. So she had to, you know, just to see outside, needed mm-hmm. to stand on her tippy toes. Uh, another person we spoke with in Cape Breton said that when he opened his front door, there was a wall of snow. He needed to let his uh, dog outside. So he grabbed a frying pan from the kitchen in order to uh, dig himself out. So people feeling a bit stuck, maybe even mm-hmm. a little lonely. Um, yeah. And when you, you know, when you look at your driveway, you can relate. I mean, in a rural area, your car is buried. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one is coming to visit. So that is starting to uh, sink in with some people. Yeah. Um, gas stations are closed. Students aren't going to be going to school tomorrow in many parts of our region. Uh, and that is one thing, though, with these storms, perspective is everything. You know, I visited uh, a toboggan hill where I talked to some parents who are watching their kids, you know, go up and down. They said it's never been easier to get their kids off their screens. They actually want to go outside because the snow is so impressive. Maybe not staying out very long, pretty cold, uh, pretty windy as well. But uh, yep. having a good time, others feeling a bit stuck. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's nice. There's often, at least for kids, uh, there, there's a nice part to this. We're speaking live with Blair Anderson, the host of Maritime Connection. He is in Halifax. And, and Blair, as of this hour, it's uh, 2.04 here Pacific time, just after 6 o'clock Atlantic time. What are local authorities telling people in the Maritimes? Uh, at least across most of Nova Scotia and parts of PEI, officials are telling people to stay off the roads. Uh, and in Cape Breton, in the Cape Breton Regional Municipality, uh, they've dis- declared a local state of emergency. Uh, and this has been done for a number of reasons. Uh, one, just to really drive home the point, stay off the roads. Uh, because, of course, when people get stuck, that means that a plow then might not be able to get through to clear the road past that vehicle. It also creates a, a possible emergency response for the person stuck inside the vehicle. Uh, we also talked to the mayor of Cape Breton Regional Municipality, uh, and she said that doctors are calling and saying they can't get to the hospital, and so they're trying to free up resources so that they can get a plow ahead of those people to get to the hospital. Uh, that's another thing with this local state of emergency 
it allows them to procure services without mm-hmm. having to go through, you know, a special process. They can just say, look, we need an excavator now. We're going to pay for it uh, and not have to go through all of that. So there is a response, particularly in Cape Breton, where they're taking this pretty seriously. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, like, I so I, I grew up uh, in Sackville, New Brunswick. We've got lots of snow, lots of times in the wintertime. So snow is, is part of winter. But when you get mm-hmm. this much snow, you start getting the kinds of potential impacts you talked about. Imagine that, having to get a snowplow out on the road so a doctor can get into the hospital. And if somebody starts suffering, let's say, chest pains at home, it suddenly right. gets, you know, suddenly gets a lot more complicated than it normally would. Well, listen, Blair, thank you so much for this live update. And I know CBC News, whether it's on News Network, radio, or the National Tonight on television, we uh, understand how serious this story is. We're staying on it. And Blair, we appreciate you helping us uh, stay updated. Ian, thank you for your interest. We are live here on Cross Country Checkup in Vancouver and across the country. My name's Ian Hanna-Mansing, and uh, we have about a half hour left, a little less than half hour actually, on our main topic, and it's about loneliness. When was the last time you felt lonely? What helped get you through it? Our phone number is 1-888-416-8333. And John Lopes has been very patient on the phone from Brampton, Ontario. Uh, hi, John. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Good. So tell me about loneliness in your life and, and what helped you deal with it. Uh, the main uh, transition period was from high school going to uh, university. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we all know, going down to University of Toronto can be very daunting, uh, the size of the faculty and the, uh, just the place itself. And and more importantly, like what program you're going to get into. So like most of the people, you're not too sure. I mean, you get apply for uh, a certain programs, so you get in. And then in the process, you want to make sure you're doing the, the right things along the way. And it's uh, very easy to figure out um, that you're not alone in the process. But at the same time, when I'm seeking out information and other people in terms of what's uh, the best decision to make, what's right, and so on, it's very easy to become lonely because uh, you realize really quickly that these people have their own different experiences on yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and- in my situation, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, in my particular case, uh, we had uh, our only core family who was here uh, living in Toronto. All the other family members were right across uh, different provinces. And so it was uh, very difficult and challenging to try to find out what the people within my own family thought about decisions to be made. So even though I found consolation to a certain degree with uh, other people, I just realized that they had a different background and different experience with them to cope with what they were going through, which is uh, quite different from my own. Yeah, and, and I think looking at the notes, in your case, uh, spirituality uh, helped with, with dealing with loneliness. Oh, absolutely. That was huge. Like, I was born within a Catholic family setting, which is great, but it's very easy to get uh, busy with all kinds of things. And what I found was very helpful was to uh, regain the uh, inner knowledge that I had before of developing the spiritual sense of who God is, how does God work in my life, and I really rely on the fact that God is there 24 hours, seven days a week. I didn't have to um, wait for somebody to meet up with me and have a discussion about what was going on, uh, and I found that more and more that through the meditation and through the, again, still speaking to other people at the best uh, way of uh, prayer and so forth, I really found great consolation knowing that I didn't have to rely on uh, individuals, shall we say, mm-hmm. or agencies to help me when I felt the really part where I felt like I needed the extra support there. So, uh, yes, there was some guidance with some people along the way, but uh, more importantly, I found that when you're home, you're studying late at night, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, and you just feel frustrated, things are not working out, that um, sense of knowing I'm able to 
pause, think, reflect, meditate. I'm not alone. God's always there to, uh, to, provide, um, to provide that kind of support that's needed. Yeah. And I carried on to this very day. And like, okay. 40, 40 years later, I'm still doing it. Good. I'm a teacher right now. I'm passing on the same information. And I find yep. that people will benefit from that. All right, John. Thank you very much for calling. Not a problem. Thank you, Ian. If you've been listening to our program, you know that Dr. Diane McIntosh, a psychiatrist, is with us throughout this portion of the show. And uh, Dr. McIntosh, in terms of what John said about spirituality, I'm curious your view as a psychiatrist and whether whether it's kind of formal church-based spirituality or, or something else. I mean, he talked about meditation as well. What, what role does that or can that play in somebody who is trying to combat loneliness? Well, Ian, in the first half, you you talked about counting steps, and I actually thought you were going to say that led you to walk on by people, but you found that that has actually helped with your community connection. Yeah, um, your guests Bob and and Catherine also talked about all of these little steps. Here's John talking about how he reignited his faith and how that was valuable. And I think all of the, those points lead to, you know, small steps can make a big difference. With um, with Bob, he reignited his passion for gardening. And for John, he found his faith again. And there is actually data, scientific data, demonstrating that people who have a faith Really, that supports their mental health. It's not for everyone. Mindfulness meditation, we know, can be very, very helpful in being able to deal with stressful experiences. And it also, I think, really is based in the fact that we all have anxiety. We all have worries. And I love the concept of letting those worries go in the front door and out the back door, but not serving them tea. That's a skill <laughs> to learn is how not to sit in it, but to allow them to go through. And I think um, I think also John made the point of that you're not alone in your loneliness. Lots of people are, are living with loneliness as well. They have different ideas of how they've gone through it and trying to reach out to, to a community. I will say, Ian, I haven't heard a lot about social media. People mm -hmm. really haven't talked a lot about reaching out to social media. Dr. McIntosh, let me ask you about social media and the role it may play either in a good or bad way when it comes to loneliness. Well, there's no doubt that social media has helped people to make connections in some respects, but mm. at the same time as we've seen this increase in the use of social media, it's sort of mirrored this increase in the level of um, loneliness and isolation, and that was intensified during the pandemic. So the data, the scientific data is actually quite mixed. There's some studies showing that people are more able to maintain their social connections using social media. And then other data, actually more data in my mind, saying that this is actually associated with poor mental health and higher levels of loneliness. And I think really what you have to look at is the amount of time that you're using social media, the purpose, because if it's only to maintain social connections, it seems not to be as effective. And also your ability outside of social media to participate in the activities that all of your guests have talked about. Mm -hmm. you, you know, social media is a medium, right? It's it's like it's like books are a medium, and and we never or shouldn't anyway kind of describe the impact of books on ourselves or our society with one line. And yet we tend to do that with social media. But as you point out, it's complicated. It's complicated what we use, what we do on it, how we try to. It can isolate you, and it can also be a bridge to 
to people. I have a lot more questions for you, Dr. McIntosh, and I will come back to you in just a moment, but I want to get uh, to another one of the experts. So thank you so much. Uh, your fantastic addition to our conversation. And as I say, I'll, I'll get back to you in just a moment, but let's go to someone with an area of expertise that you might not think would be included in this, uh, but it's actually really important. Uh, the relationship between humans and artificial intelligence. We've seen it in films like Her and Blade Runner, a human who's feeling alone turns to AI or some version of that for companionship. Uh, and it's not just something we see in movies anymore. With, with the rapid advancement of artificial intelligence over the past few years, millions of people are now turning to AI chatbots like Chat GPT and Replica for friendship or more. Is it really friendship? Well, we'll find out. Uh, Kelly Merrill Jr. is an assistant professor of health communication and technology at the University of Cincinnati. He's done research on the health impacts of AI companions. Hi, Professor Merrill. Hi, how's it going? Thank you for having me today. Yeah, well, thank you very much for taking part in the show. So for the people who are listening who, who don't really recognize the term AI chatbots, I guess that's essentially a program on your computer or you can have it uh, on your phone um, and, and you can use it to, to connect with basically a computer that uses artificial intelligence. Uh, Professor, how effective can that be in alleviating loneliness? Yeah, so AI chatbots actually are these tools that exist on a lot of devices that we're already interacting with. So on laptops, we have access to them. Even on our phones, especially with iPhones, we have access to Siri. And these are just AI-based chatbots that we can have these meaningful interactions and conversations with. And so they penetrate our lives at many different steps of, of, of really just um many different steps of, of what we interact with every day. And so I think that they can be effective in addressing loneliness to an extent. And I say that meaningfully simply because there are times that people will go online or go to Snapchat's AI or go to their Siri on their iPhone and try to develop an interaction with them, try to engage with them in a meaningful way. But unfortunately over time, right, it it kind of alters the way that we actually see our interactions with other people. And so we might perceive our face-to-face -face interactions with individuals, with people in the real world as being very different than what exists compared to when we're interacting with an AI. And so I think it can be effective at providing emotional support, um, providing esteem-related support. But over time, with the continued use, kind of like what Dr. McIntosh was saying, with the continued use of AI, we could then have these kind of negative perceptions of what AI can actually provide for us. Yeah, well, we know that AI is far from perfect. There are lots of stories in the media of some of the dangers and excesses of AI. Um, for someone using this technology, particularly with loneliness in mind and trying to create a connection with something or someone, what are some of the dangers to be aware of? Yeah, there, there are quite many dangers, and I tell people all the time. Um, one of those is being privacy. We're using these online tools, we're engaging with them, whether it be through social media, whether it be through our phones, whether it be through our laptops, and we're signing up for essentially sharing a lot of our data. Um, and when we're interacting with these AI, sometimes we share too much of our own information, we're sharing a lot about ourselves, and it oftentimes is the case that these companies are using that data for other means. They might be selling it to other companies, they might be using it in other ways, and so privacy and security is a big concern. Uh, so, another concern. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, please continue. 
Well, I was just going to say that another concern could be that we have these imagined interactions where we no longer perceive our face-to-face -face interactions with other people to be the way that they should be, right? We're constantly interacting with an AI that can respond to us immediately. You can say hello right now and they'll have many different responses available to you. You can tell them your favorite color today, they'll remember that in weeks from now. But that's not how we interact with people. It not often is the case that someone remembers these small, minute details that you tell them at one point in time that seven weeks away from now, months now, they're not going to remember those things. And so you develop these these weird kind of expectations for what you would hope for an interaction after interacting with AI for so long that when you're actually interacting with a human, you're expecting them to be just like that AI. And it's just not the case. Yeah. So this is a world I, I really know nothing about. And so, I mean, I have an iPhone, so it has Siri on it. I occasionally will say, hey, Siri, and ask a question. I'll have fun with it. I'll ask Siri to, you know, come up with a, a limerick or a rap or, uh, you know, what's the weather like in Timbuktu? But, you know, there's no meaningful conversation going on there. Uh, as somebody who studies this, like, is there technology there where somebody who is alone or just feeling lonely uh, that they can go to and actually have a, a half hour conversation that feels meaningful? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, technology is advancing very quickly nowadays. And we see a lot of people going online, especially thinking about Siri. We all have access to Siri. If we have an iPhone, it's it's one of the baseline ones that we all can engage with at any point in time. But more advanced AI like Replica, for example, where you can create an AI, you can create what they look like, you can um, alter their personality characteristics, you can have sustained long conversations with them, and you can come back the next day and continue those same conversations. So it gives these people the, that are using these AI kind of this idea that like I have someone that can interact with me at any point in time, any time of the day, that I can go online, have a conversation, and then they could respond and they remember things that I've said in the past to them and they continue to build what they perceive as being a relationship. And I, I think of it a lot as being similar to like an online kind of um, online chat where you're interacting with strangers. You don't necessarily know who you're interacting with if you're in a large chat room, but you're talking to someone. And that's the same kind of perception of what Replica's AI is doing as well. It's like you're talking to someone that might really exist, but not necessarily exist in your mind um, and in the real world as well. Um, but you're perceiving it as that they do exist in some way because you're able to interact with them. They're able to hold those conversations with you. And it just seems like it can be real. Uh, so one last thing then, and again, uh, tapping into your expertise, I'm sure there's some people, Professor Merrill, who are listening to this going, oh, this is icky. Like this is not, uh, you know, this is not something that we should be embracing. What would you say to them? Yeah, you know, I tell people when it comes to AI, and I know right now uh, it's a big hot topic and people are scared. And I just related a lot to the internet, that when the internet first became a thing, people were just baffled. They're like, why are you going online for information? You should be going to the library. And I think that's kind of the phase that we're in right now is that people are just so scared of AI and 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 what it's, it's bringing to us. And I think that we just need to be far more educated about the ability that AI has, about its limitations, because in doing so, we can interact with it much better. We can actually limit our time, as Dr. McIntosh was saying a little earlier, we can limit our time, really have a specific purpose um, and use it for benefiting those reasons, but then also not realizing that it, it cannot replace offline interactions, that we still need to have those offline interactions and meaningful interactions with people. Really interesting to talk to you. Your students are very lucky. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us. Yeah, thank you for having me.
Kelly Merrill Jr. is a professor of health communication and technology at the University of Cincinnati. A reminder, in 10 minutes, we go to our AMA with Dr. Daniel Metzger, a pediatric endocrinologist who works with kids who are transitioning at BC Children's Hospital. And you can ask him questions about gender-affirming treatments for young people, 1-888-416-8333. Or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck to write down your question. Ten minutes left. I'm going to go to at least two calls, maybe three, and then to Dr. McIntosh one last time. So we'll, as always happens on the program, we get more and more calls and, and, uh, and I'll try to get through uh, some of those before we get to the Ask Me Anything. Zev Kalin is in Ottawa. Hi, Zev. Hi. You, you volunteer with an organization that, that helps people connect. Describe that for us. Um, it's... Uh called A Friendly Voice, and you Mm -hmm. can find our number by just Googling A Friendly Voice, and uh, we uh, just get calls from people who are isolated. Usually, they're they're over 55 is our our bracket, Mm -hmm. and uh, um, people just call and chat, and uh, they can call a couple of times a day for half an hour, and... um, it seems to go over very well. Have you been one of the people who takes calls? Yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, and what's that experience been like for you? Um, interesting. Uh, I find I'm a terrible conversationalist, but I'm a good listener. So uh, <laughs> um, it helps when people have something to say. And yeah. um, I hear from different people from uh, all over Ontario and the Maritimes. And uh, it's... It, it's quite rewarding. You know, Dr. McIntosh talked earlier in the program about how things like this are not only good for the people who are calling in, but the people who are helping. Like, it feels nice to be able to help. And and I assume you enjoy that part of things. Sure. And I don't feel lonely while I'm on the phone. I'll bet. I'll bet. Okay, Zeb, thank you very much. Thank you. Let's go to Lynn Crandon, who's in Victoria, British Columbia. Hi, Lynn. Oh, hi, Ian. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for, for calling in and thanks for waiting on the line. And uh, we've heard references to, to pets uh, on the program, and, and, and that has helped you deal with loneliness, from what I understand. Absolutely. Um, I've long had a cat, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I adopted a small dog, rescue dog, mm-hmm. um, which has been, it, it's actually done wonders uh, for assuaging loneliness. It is you know, brought the companionship to my life, entertainment of his antics, but also it gets me out in my neighborhood every day. And, you know, when I would walk in my neighborhood before, like nobody talks to you, but when you have a dog, <laughs> lots of people talk to you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've met more neighbors and connected with more people, um, made friends through dog walk up, dog walking groups, um, it has just been a real godsend, really, for me for, um, you know, creating some connection to my community, which has been amazing. Yeah, that that is uh, fantastic. And so you feel better. I do. Uh, however, um, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because, of course, um, with the housing issues in Victoria, um, you know, it having a pet makes it virtually impossible to find a place to rent. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so while I've had this other, you know, brightness brought into my life, um, on the alternate side, uh, there's been this incredible stress 
because I would say 99% of the rentals out there are closed to me. And I can't so much as even get to look at most places. As soon as I mention I have a pet, you know, suddenly, you know, the call ends, the email breaks off, the doors close. And uh, I've even had hostility in response (laughs) because I'll be like, why no pets? You know, and it created a whole other stressor in my life because it's... uh, so difficult to find a place to live. All right. Well, that's a good thing for, for landlords to think about is the importance uh, that pets hold for some of the people, maybe many, maybe all the people who are renting. Thank you so much. Let's go to one more call before we get to Dr. McIntosh for one last time. Christine Wilson is in New Dublin, Ontario. Hi, Christine. Oh, hi, Ian. It's very nice to get through to you. Well, very I, nice I, to I have you. I think I have some good ideas to combat loneliness. Okay, well, and then I have bad news for you, and that is because, because we're near the end of this portion of the program. We only have a couple of minutes, so Christine, well, I apologize. I, I talk pretty fast anyway. So. Okay, I apologize in advance, but, but you, you tell me your I'll solution. I'll get to the nitty-gritty, but All my right. husband died suddenly 11 mm. years ago, February 9th, so it's just coming up. Oh. But I had never thought I'd be by myself in retirement. I, I taught high school for 38 years, and I love teenagers. But when I retired, I have this farm that I live on, and my husband died. I thought, how can I live here with six bedrooms, and I have all this space? So I, I, I joined the wife. The first year, I was down in the dump so much all the time. And I, that was a good thing. I made wonderful friends on the, at the Y in various exercise programs. But it still kept, I was coming home to a big empty house all the time. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I've got two dogs, three cats, and about ten chickens. And the thing is, I just didn't fill the gap. So then someone said, well, why don't you get a student? So that started me on my road. About six years ago, I got a wonderful lad from, from uh, Barcelona, and he was just great. And I got a Chinese lad that stayed with me for two years. They, they both they went to the high school in here in Brockville, because uh, I live north of Brockville. Mm-hmm. And anyway, uh, the other students I've had from Argentina, and I've had lovely students from Japan. I just received a student two days ago from Japan, another girl, and she's in grade 10 at a local high school here. And the thing is, they get on the bus in the morning, they go, I have the day to myself to go to the Y or do things, and then I have someone to eat dinner with at night. Plus, I get some remuneration, yep. which helps. And it's with a wonderful group called Homestay. Mm-hmm. Homestay Canada will look for people all over Canada to take students in, you know. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. And uh, you do speak uh, quickly, but very clearly. And you also, Christine, potentially have places to stay when you decide to travel abroad. I don't know I if it's good. I have standing invitations yeah. to Japan and I'll Barcelona. bet you do. <laughs> Barcelona, well, yeah, fantastic. Listen, and I'm... You know, I, with about yep. Facebook and with Instagram, you yeah. get so much contact. So the students are always... Uh, sending me messages and it's, absolutely it's fun. I feel like I have a whole new family. I have five of my own kids. Wow! So I think it's my calling in life to look after teenagers. But that you fun. that that you have five children, that you were a high school teacher, and that you still want to be surrounded by high school students says a lot of good things about you, Christine. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Ian, for taking my call. Yeah, you're very welcome. We appreciate it. Bye bye. Let's go to Dr. Diane McIntosh one last time, a psychiatrist who's been with us through the program. She's here in Vancouver. Uh, Dr. McIntosh, you're so diligent about kind of noting what callers say and reacting to it. So I'll just hand it over to you and you can say whatever you like. Okay, I need to hear more from Kelly. He was awesome. And I think one of the really important points he made is that if you, the, the AI opportunities are vast, but 
they can change our normal interactions with other people. You know, our brains are plastic. And if you don't use your skills, you can lose them or they can weaken. Think about it, Ian. When we were growing up, we remembered everyone's phone number. I can't remember anybody's phone number anymore. Right. Yes. So that those changes in the way that we interact, if we don't use them, if we don't use those skills, they can become rusty. Mm -hmm. So starting like so many of your guests said, what going to the Y, meeting some new people that way, doing a little bit of exercise and slowly those those skills will reemerge. So I think uh, you got to talk to Kelly again sometime because yeah. that was a really interesting topic. And he brings up an important point. These, these social skills can become a little rusty, but other people are having the same challenges. So just do those little outreaches and it can make a, a, a slow and steady difference in your, your level of isolation and loneliness. You know, one common theme we heard in a few of the calls, and part of it has to do with, you know, the demographic of people listening to the radio, I suppose, but <clears throat> older people who had uh, a, a spouse, whose spouse died, right? And all of a sudden they were alone in two of the cases, a sudden death, they weren't ready for it. Uh, that must be something that you see a lot the, the, and, and, the, and how difficult a challenge that is for the person who's left behind. Absolutely. And one of the things that I found so valuable for so many of my patients who had endured that was going to grief counseling, going to a peer-to-peer -peer group with other people who have had the same experience. And even in small communities, often this is accessible in person, certainly virtually, and not everyone loves the virtual experience, but a shared experience. You don't necessarily need to have a professional involved at all, but someone else who can say, this is what it was like for me, maybe different for you, or this is what worked for me. And that's why when I brought up earlier about the Alzheimer's Society, for instance, the support that they can give for caregivers who often feel very isolated, and just those little tips about how other people have been able to manage a, a, what can be a very, very challenging time. You know, every once in a while, Dr. McIntosh, we have a guest on the program, and I think they should have their own show. You are one of those guests who should have your own show. It's been fantastic having you here for an hour and a half. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. All right. Dr. Diane McIntosh is a psychiatrist, and we reached her in Vancouver. It's time for Ask Me Anything with Dr. Daniel Metzger on gender-affirming care. wanted to make sure that we, we struck the right balance so that kids are not making irreversible decisions. I guess I just am concerned. These surgeries are very complicated. In the past year with uh, therapy, hormone treatment, he is now finally at a point of working part-time, hoping to go back to school. These decisions are made in collaboration with parents, with families, based on best practice, based on best evidence. This week, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith announced a series of policy changes affecting transgender and non-binary youth. Part of the proposal includes imposing age restrictions for puberty blockers, hormone therapies, and access to surgery. The legislation won't be formally introduced until the fall of this year, but today we wanted to take a step back from the politics at play here and focus on the health issues at stake for transgender youth and their parents across the country. Gender-affirming health care is endorsed by medical 
associations, including the Canadian Pediatric Society and the Canadian Psychological Association. So today we want to explore how it actually works. Dr. Daniel Metzger is a pediatric endocrinologist at BC Children's Hospital, where he treats, among others, transgender patients. He's also the co-investigator of a major study called Trans Youth Can, which looked at medical outcomes for this population and was funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Dr. Metzger is here live to take your calls and questions. You can ask him anything on this topic, one 888-416-8333. You can text a question to 226-758-8924. And Dr. Metzger, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to be here. The Canadian Pediatric Society and the Alberta Medical Association have been among the critics urging the province of Alberta to, to step back from their plans, to change their plans. Uh, you aren't here as a spokesperson for, because you're not, uh, for the Canadian Pediatric Society, but you've written a position paper for that organization on gender-affirming care. What are the concerns being raised about the Alberta proposal, specifically around gender-affirming treatments? So gender-affirming care really just means meeting the child where they are, finding out what they're thinking, how they're feeling about their gender, and and what sort of concerns that might be raising. It also means meeting with families and, and parents and finding out how things are working for them. Uh, we have international guidelines from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, um, and our position statement for the Canadian Pediatric Society was really just how uh, does one put this into practical uh, application for pediatrics, uh, pediatricians and for family physicians in Canada? And um, much of what we do has been um, studied now. We, we've, in Canada, been treating kids medically for 26 years. Our, our clinic in Vancouver was the first to treat kids, and we've treated quite a few. There are now clinics across Canada. And we all follow the same guidelines. We all, um, you know, read the same literature. We all follow with interest the the things we need to know and the things we need to learn. Um, and I think um, I think these are sort of medical decisions that should be made in in the context of what's good medical care, and of course, including the patients and their families. Premier Danielle Smith of Alberta said this week that she she supports trans adults who want to transition, but she doesn't believe children should be making those decisions. And Dr. Metzger, I think that probably has a lot of resonance with a lot of people. What would you say to that? I think we need to give Canadian children more credit. Like, like I think if I were to take 10 people off the street who are transgender and say, are you a guy or a woman? They would be able to tell you that pretty easily. And I would say, well, when did you know that? They'd be like, as long as I can remember. So, so the, the, you know, cisgender people know their gender forever. Nobody questions that. But trans kids have to prove over and over, trans adults have to prove over and over that they know what their gender is. But most of us have had a gender since forever, and it hasn't wavered very much. Uh, our, how we express it might have changed. So I think, I think kids do know their gender. I think uh, it does sometimes uh, lead to such levels of concern and dysphoria that they need help with that. Some kids are perfectly fine changing their name, changing their their haircut, changing their clothing. Some kids need more help than that. But I think uh, waiting till someone is 18 is is missing the boat. 
We're live here with Dr. Daniel Metzger, a pediatric endocrinologist at BC Children's Hospital, and he's here to answer your questions about gender-affirming care for youth. Our phone number on cross-country checkup is 1-888-416-8333. You know, Dr. Metzger, there are a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of those are among our listeners now, who have never had any direct contact with anybody uh, who, who had 11 or 12 or 13 years old has talked about gender affirming care. So all of a sudden, you know, they're hearing all of these stories um, and and they just, you know, and, and, and one of the things I hear some people say is, what about if a kid's just going through a phase? What about if, if you know, they, 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 they say they want something at 11 or 12 um, that it turns out when they get through this phase, they're not going to want anymore. And here we have doctors going ahead and changing that kid's gender um, without the parents knowing. So there's a lot there to unpack, but I'm sure you've heard versions of of that kind of comment before. What would you say? Well, I think firstly, uh, trans people have been around forever. Uh, it's not it's not something that came about yesterday. Uh, the Canadian census showed that one in 300 uh, Canadians consider themselves to be transgender, non-binary. If you look at youth in the sort of 19 to 25 age group, that's one in 125 kids. Uh, so there's not just a, a, a couple of kids. I think uh, kids don't get slapped onto hormones or blockers without their parents' notice. Kids don't uh, just go into a doctor and get hormones uh, because that's what the doctor wants. We have a very uh, clear process that kids are uh, first meet with some sort of a mental health professional who um, is well versed in what um, in the in normal neuropsychological, developmental, uh, psychosexual developmental stages of, of adolescence. And so they know what, what sort of the normal range is for, for, for kids. And, and those um, mental health professionals um, assess kids to find out, well, maybe they're just confused about their sexuality. Well, it's not that. Maybe they had an unfortunate experience and they're reacting in a funny way. Not that. So they they go through the whole list of things that this could be. But in fact, most of the kids that present as trans are trans. They've often known it for many years and and they've often already sort of socially transitioned themselves anyway. It's our job to keep those people, those kids in a place of comfort and a place of safety and to help them in, in ways that, for, with using the tools that we have. Um, nobody just goes and goes to a doctor's office and gets a shot the first time. Nobody goes and gets uh, surgeries uh, without, uh, without some sort of uh, preparation. And, and, and first of all, we're not even doing surgeries in children in most places in Canada. That's almost always a, an 18 or above thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's just a lot of disinformation out there. And part of the reason we're here today is just to dispel some of that information. 100%. And that's why I'm so thankful that you have uh, agreed not only to be part of the program, but to take calls from people and uh, have their questions here on this Ask Me Anything. Uh, Dr. Metzger, let's start with a question that was texted to us from Terry Anderson, who's in Edmonton. Uh, Terry asks, can an adolescent take puberty blockers for two to three years with no long-term effects? I've heard different answers. What's the empirical evidence? So just, you know, puberty blockers are, are sort of out there as, as being uh, re- completely reversible medications, which is not 100% true. Uh, they are 100% true in the terms of if you start a puberty blocker, the puberty turns off. If you stop the puberty blocker, the, the puberty turns back on. Puberty blockers have been around now for 35 years. And so we, we know that that part of what puberty blockers does is irreversible. 
But when you turn puberty off or puberty turns itself off because you're sick, um, a lot of the processes that, that need to happen during puberty stop. So brain development stops in certain ways. Bone development, which is one of our biggest concerns, stops. And so we don't want kids on blockers for long periods of time so that they get so far behind, particularly like in their bone development, that it makes it difficult to catch up down the road. And so we do want um, kids to um, be able to formulate a plan within a couple of years, given their age, given their level of maturity, given their, their own sort of circumstances around their own puberty, so that they're not on these medications forever without either stopping them, moving forward with their original puberty, or moving forward with a puberty that aligns with how, how they identify. Uh, because we want to get the bones um, accumulating calcium again. We want to get the brain rewiring in the way that it's meant to rewire for, for that child's um, gender identity. We have a really important Ask Me Anything here on the program. We're on what is often an emotional and ideological issue of uh, transitioning youth and the, the health care they get. Um, but we can also look at this in terms of science and evidence and what actually is happening in a hospital like BC Children's Hospital. And that's why Dr. Daniel Metzger is here. So you can call or text uh, or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck to ask questions, 1-888-416-8333. Karen Litsky has called us. She's in Vancouver. Hi, Karen. Hi. What's your question for Dr. Metzger? Uh, I'd like to know how much it costs to put a child through gender transition in terms of direct lifetime cost and what indirect flows of money there are behind the scenes to hospitals, to government, other grants the public might not know about. Dr. Metzger? So, yes, thank you. Uh, that's going to be very dependent upon where you are uh, in the country. Um, in British Columbia, most of this is covered through the public health system after you paid off your deductibles. To a degree, it's covered by um, private insurers. Puberty blockers are expensive. They're about $3,500 a year. Um, testosterone and estrogen are pretty cheap, five to 10 bucks a week uh, as medications go. Um, so the medical costs are pretty easy to, to quantify. So, um, um, you know, a, 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 the average kid would be on blockers for say a couple of years, if they are going to even start on them, that's, you know, 5,000, sorry, $7,000. And then the lifetime cost of medication is, is pretty, pretty negligible considering how much many other drugs cost. They're old, old medications. They're not, they're not fancy anything. They're off patent. They're uh, they're about as cheap of medications as you can get. The hormones blockers are still, as I mentioned, they're still expensive. And Karen, are you still on the line? Do you have a follow up question? Yeah, uh, basically, I guess I'm wondering if there's sort of a grant, sort of an economic uh, edifice that's built around this. Whether there are, um, are are grants being given to hospitals and to governments, whether there are um, sort of you know things going on in the university that are being paid for by pharmaceutical companies and so on. Um, Do you have some insight into that that you can share? I certainly do. Uh, trans medicine, gender medicine, is not the way to get rich. The, as I mentioned, insure, you know, testosterone, estrogen, they're off patent. They're, the companies, they don't make any money from those drugs. The blocker companies um, can't actually talk to us about blockers because, as everybody knows, they are not. Uh, we use them in an off-label way. So they are licensed by Health Canada to stop puberty. They're not specifically licensed 
by Health Canada to stop puberty in trans youth. Uh, they're meant for precocious puberty and for a, a few other things in the adult world. Um, so they're, we're not even allowed to talk to the, the the blocker companies about trans stuff, about the use. And of course, they know what happens. Um, no. So there's no there's no feedback here. Like, like we have to raise money just like everybody else. We have to go through government, show needs and things like that. But um, and, and the same for surgery in Canada. I, like there's only two or three surgery centers. So I not being a surgeon, I can still tell you that th- th- this is not a money making proposition. And Karen, are you still on the line? I am. I, I, do, so I'm trying to, are, are, do you have a concern that maybe there's a, a profit motive here or a money motive for, for doctors and hospitals when it comes to gender affirming care? Yeah, I mean, the uh, certainly the level of enthusiasm that the um, medical occupations have for this um, is concerning to a lot of us who have kind of um, uh, sort of yeah health-based concerns about the kids and the adults involved and who are also looking at detransitioners who are uh, going through this process and then saying, wait, this was wrong for me. So we're, we're really wondering, and, and there's not a lot of discussion about the detransitioners, so, so I'm really curious about um, about whether there's a financial incentive and whether there are any people who are in conflict of interest. Right. And so when you hear from Do- uh, Dr. Metzger that there there isn't uh, a financial incentive, uh, w- how do you feel about that? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I mean, he hasn't covered sort of a, a lot of the, the ways that, that we know that pharmaceutical money uh, and, and, and the, the medical market uh, works in the bigger picture. And it's hard sometimes to differentiate uh, American information from Canadian information. So, um, and, and certainly the degree to which pharmaceutical money, I don't know, is funding research at the universities and so on. And these are questions that I think the public has and, and, uh, and, and would really enjoy some insight into. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your call. I appreciate that. Our number here on Cross Country Checkup is 1-888-416-8333. You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. And our guest is Dr. Daniel Metzger, who is a pediatric endocrinologist at BC Children's Hospital. Dr. Metzger, let me ask you about, uh, as the caller, you know, she's the word enthusiastic. uh, So I'll, I'll just quote her and you can answer this however you want. Why are you so enthusiastic about providing gender affirming care to young people? My goodness, I'm a pediatrician. I should be enthusiastic about looking after my patients. Um, I don't think anybody wants a doctor that's glum. Um, <laughs> I'm enthusiastic about looking after my kids with diabetes. I'm enthusiastic and looking after my kids with delayed puberty. That's my job to be enthusiastic. Yeah. Um, it's very rewarding to 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 do gender care in kids. Um, a lot of times I'm telling kids, you know what, you got diabetes, you're gonna take insulin for the rest of your life. Sorry. We'll help you with that. But when you meet a trans kid and you can offer them a chance to have their body look closer to the way they feel it should look and they're just happy all the time, nothing better than that. And and let me ask you directly the question that I guess she was asking indirectly. 
What about a profit motive here? Whether it's mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, channeling money to you, your hospital, or the university, or or anything else. You know, a cruise where you get to uh, be, you know, they take you down there and they teach you about uh, dealing with uh, gender affirming uh, surgeries or or treatments. I guess for youth, is there anything at all that could be interpreted as a money motive for your enthusiasm? So, so like, really, we're deal- dealing with one company, the company that makes uh, the blocker that we use in Canada. No, I don't even know our rep. I don't even know how to find our rep. Our, probably our nurses do. Um, you know, every university, ha- any kind of research or anything, the, the university has very strict controls over ethics and ethics and research. And when, you know, I can't just go do a research project uh, without without reams of paperwork, in, in including any any sort of drug company money that might be involved. And and without signing off lots and lots of paperwork, I don't do research for partly for that reason. Um, but but there, you know, every university has some oversight into how university hospital uh, people interact with industry. Um, do I go on cruises from the blocker companies? No, I don't. <laughs> Wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, I they have offered, and I'm not going to say yes if they do. Yeah. It's so good to have you uh, answering these questions. one 416 or people can text us, which is what Jane Keeler did. She's in Ottawa. And Dr. Metzger hears her question via text. Can you help me understand the difference of a need for gender-affirming surgery versus a person who simply hates their body, bracket body dysphoria? Oh, they probably mean despite his dysmorphia. So that is a, that I'm not a psychiatrist, but I, I feel like, I know what she's getting at. So um, some people have a condition would just say that I cannot stand my shoulders. My shoulders are terrible. Uh, Every time I look at my shoulders, they just make me cringe. Um, That's uh, that's um, that would be people, for instance, who get a lot of plastic surgeries because they never feel their face is correct. That's body dysmorphia, which, um, again, not a psychiatrist, but that means that that you have a um, psychological problem with a part of your body. That is different than gender dysphoria, where you think my entire body does not match what my brain is telling me. And a big part of the mental health assessment that people uh, go through looking for trans, uh, looking for gender care is around that exact question. Is this, is this like a body mor- dysmorphia thing? Is this a sort of a form of eating disorder or is this really gender dysphoria? So um, uh, this is why we have mental health experts to do exactly this. And I've sat in on joint rounds and I've heard, you know, cases being discussed where I'm like, this is very hard to tell apart, but only in in rare cases. In most cases, it's quite clear what um, the the difference between these these two um, these two ideas, gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia. Yeah. Um, yeah, both. That's the other problem. You can have both, too. Another problem. Uh, let's go to Anne Robertson, who is in Ontario. Hi, Anne. Are you on the line? Yes, I am. Um, and what's your question for Dr. Metzger? Okay, so my question is, my daughter started her periods when she was 11, which is last year, and she's now 12 years old. She doesn't want them. Um, she's not sure if she's non-binary. She thinks she might be. 
but she wants to have puberty blockers to stop that. <laughs> um, would that be a possibility? I think that we haven't suggested this to her doctor yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, again, she, does, she doesn't want the period. Okay. <laughs> not happy with it at all. Okay, and let's uh, bring in Dr. Metzger. Obviously, you can't uh, diagnose somebody from afar like that, but, but what are some of the issues that, that are raised there by Anne, Dr. Metzger? This is actually a question we get quite a bit. And again, I don't want to go into the specifics of your your child, but the average cisgender girl who is getting their period is nearly develop, nearly completely done developing, meaning like the breast development is probably getting close to the end. So at this point, if, if, you're, if your child were to go just on puberty blockers, their estrogen level would be up here, it would go down, they would go through menopause, and we, we would get rid of the periods, but we would also not get rid of all of the other changes that have already happened. There are many simpler ways of turning uh, periods off for for um, cisgender girls who have very painful periods, for non-binary and trans uh, kids who, who want to get rid of their periods, continuous birth control, Depo-Provera, an intrauterine device, um, patches, implants. There's many um, simpler ways of getting rid of periods for for, for um, assigned females whose body development is pretty far along already. Um, so I would think that that would be something that you could certainly discuss with your, your family doctor or, or a pediatrician or, or um, some a specialist like that. Okay. I just think that she, she'll, she's just started using the term non-binary, but she's yeah. happy, she says to me that she's happy being a girl. She just doesn't want to grow breasts. Woman, yes. she doesn't want. I guess there's a way that she just doesn't want to grow up, and and I'm like, well, then we need to talk about this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so, and and would and would she also? This is another question, and this is like some of these kids are talking about at school. Can they get hysterectomies? And they know that they don't want, you know, they're they feel that they'll be old enough at 15 or 16 to make that decision. That they know they're not going to have children because we have a lot of kids that are concerned about the environment right now. Mm-hmm. Would would they be allowed to have a hysterectomy? At age 15 or 16 or 14 or whatnot. No, I I don't know that that's happening anywhere in the country, probably before like at least 1819, but probably even later than that. I I think with waiting lists, it's probably later than that. No, certainly I've, we've never thought about that in a child and, and uh, the WPATH guidelines don't state um, age cutoffs for different procedures, but, but they do suggest, you know, that's an adult decision. Anything that could um, alter your ability to to um, have a reproductive capability down the road, um, which is a you know a big issue for us to think about. But um, no, surgery is not going to happen when 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 your child's under eighteen. Okay, let's go to uh, another call now. Here, Marsha Bergen is in Vancouver Island, and uh, Marsha, we have only about three minutes left. But what's your question for Dr. Metzger? Okay, this is regarding a grandchild mm-hmm. who has been um, lives in the lower mainland, has gone to a children's hospital, has been has been on a puberty blocker since the age of ten, now fourteen, so I'd say four years, just about, and would like to go on testosterone. That was not recommended, and I'm really concerned about bone structure. Um, and, and, and I heard that in the beginning of the program. Um, and I, I don't think the parents are very concerned or just don't want to talk about it. So, right, so your concern is, is bone development and, and wondering if testosterone ought to be uh, uh, given to this child, uh, right? 
Yeah, yeah, except I don't know. In a way, okay. I thought it was good advice not to do it, and, yep. and the person has to now see a psychiatrist, yeah. which I think is a good idea, but there's a long wait list. So, yeah. On, so, okay. so, yeah, so Dr. Metzger, and again, of course, Marsha, he, he can't speak uh, about the individual mm-hmm. case or the details of it, but again, Dr. Metzger, the issues raised by Marsha, what would you say? You, you brought up two really good issues. I did talk about the bone stuff at the beginning. And so when we have kids on blockers without second hormones for long periods of time, we are feeling a little bit more like we have to come up with a a plan to protect the bones. Again, I don't know what's happening with your child, but of course the next, if that child or somebody, well, if the child is thinking about testosterone, then the plan is to go back to see a mental health professional who can do an assessment for that. And your biggest point that you just made is that everywhere in Canada, there is, um, uh, we're under-resourced in mental health, not just for this, but for across the country for all issues. And um, and our public system is jammed in BC as it is everywhere. The private system is actually quite busy as well. Um, so um, I, I it, you know, it, just sort of very generically, it sounds like your kid is um, gonna go talk to somebody and see if testosterone is the right next move for them. Yeah, and that's uh, the caller's uh, grandchild that she she was talking about. And and Dr. Yes. Metzger, we have like literally 30 seconds left, but maybe a last word uh, for people on this often very emotional issue filled with a lot of misinformation in cases. What would you say? You know, trans kids are one of our most vulnerable groups in the world, and particularly those of color, particularly those who are Indigenous and Two-Spirit. Let's not use them as political pawns. Let's be kind. Let's arm ourselves with good information, not disinformation. And let's use that to welcome them into our society. There's lots of more horrible things going on. Worry about the climate. Don't worry about trans kids taking over the world, although they're probably going to. <laughs> Dr. Metzger, it has been a real pleasure to have you on the program. And uh, always like a, a doctor who comes in and talks about science and evidence. And, uh, and that's exactly what you've done. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Good afternoon. That's it for Check Up the Podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkups live broadcast on CBC Radio from February the 4th, 2024. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Tori Goodwin, Bisma Mogul, and Shaima Shoaik. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Naveen Hassan, Adi Krishnan, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wolfson. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Ruxar Ali, Abby Plenner, Rachel DeGasperas, and Kate Helmore. Our digital producer is Sinisha Yolich. The senior producer of the program is Steve Howard, and I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.